All right, we come now to my favorite hour of my favorite day of the week, which is the hour in which we open the Word of God and proclaim the truths there found. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. You should have assumed by now that I was going to say that. I see, I see that that's the case because most of you are not turning because you are already there. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. I was thinking about this this afternoon about how long we've been in 1 Corinthians. I preached the first sermon from 1 Corinthians March 28th, meaning that we have been in 1 Corinthians now for six months and we are uh, at the beginning of chapter 3. Now there's 16 chapters to this letter. So you college students that are good at math, figure out how long we might be here. Uh, But that's quite all right. We'll be here as long as we need to be here uh, because there's so much in it. And the text that we're coming to tonight Picking up where we left off at verse 5, again, I said this last Sunday, but it's true this Sunday as well. It amazes me how relevant the Word of God is to our everyday lives and the things that we're going through and the situations that we face, even in expository preaching. Think, Think about this. When we started 1 Corinthians six months ago, we did not know what would be going on in our lives when we came to this text. We did not know what would be going on in the ministry here in Paris when we come to this text. But the Lord knew. And the Lord purposed uh, to put us here where we are in the text when we come to it. There are men who uh, have criticized this method of preaching. There are men who say, well, you cannot determine to preach through a whole book like this because you will not be able to be relevant to the current needs of the congregation. And so... Uh, what they do is they preach different portions of Scripture Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Well, I found that to not be the case at all. I found that if the Lord can lead you in one sermon, why can He not lead you to preach a whole series of sermons? Furthermore, I think that it's best to preach the Bible as God wrote the Bible. When, When you do your daily Bible reading... I hope that you do not just wake up in the morning and open your Bible to a random place and read five verses and then flip and read another five verses in a random place and then close your Bible and then the next morning do the same thing. I hope that as you're reading through the Bible, say you're reading from beginning to end, I hope you start in Genesis 1 and you read chapter 1, 2, and 3 and then you come back the next day and read 4, 5, and 6. I knew a wonderful man of God, David Miller, He's a a preacher out in Arkansas, and he is paralyzed from the neck down. It amazed me the first time I went to hear him preach. He says, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And I turn in my Bibles to Romans chapter 7, and he begins to read the text. Or at least I thought he was reading the text. And he gets about halfway through Romans 7, and I look up at him, and I realize he's not reading anything. He has memorized the chapter from which he preaches. And it is his custom to memorize not only the entirety of the text from which he's preaching, but he memorizes his outline and everything he's going to say as well. He, uh, he's, of course, he's been doing this now for four or five decades, but still it amazes me the mental uh, fitness that he has to do such a thing. And I was at a conference where he was a speaker and they asked him the question, uh, 
Brother Miller, what is your suggestion for reading Scripture? And he, you'd have to hear him. To, he's a very old Southern gentleman, and he says, "Well, he said I reckon the best thing I can tell you to do is open your Bible to Genesis chapter one and just read until you get tired, and put you a little bookmark where you stopped, close your Bible. The next day, pick right back up where you left off and read until you get tired. And when you get to the end." Go back to Genesis 1 and do it over again. <laughs> so, words of wisdom from, uh, from David Miller. I pray that we all would get simple things like that through our heads. So, uh, let's get to the... That, that was the appetizer. That was the, the, that was the front porch. Let's go into the house. Let's get to the, to the main course. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. I want to preach a message tonight entitled, Putting Preachers into Perspective. That's the title. Don't say it five times really fast, but putting preachers into perspective. Beginning with verse 5. These are the words of God. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. God is the master architect of the church. He is the one who has designed its operation and has established its purpose. In his eternal wisdom, God has seen fit to raise up gifted men to serve as under-shepherds who provide for the spiritual well-being and oversight of the flock. Faithful pastors are crucial to the health of a church. When church members fail to understand the purpose, function, and vitality of the pastoral office, the consequences are disastrous. When a congregation fails to understand who their pastors are, what their responsibilities are, and why God raised them up, and what their role and purpose is in the body, the results are chaotic. When pastors are not viewed in a biblical light, these gifted men that are meant to be blessings to the church become sources of tension, schism, pride, and carnality. And what I'm describing to you is exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. And what Paul is going to do in this text is he is going to put preachers into perspective. There are fundamentally two ways in which a congregation can misunderstand and thus mistreat their pastor. There are two ways in which you can do this. Number one is by thinking that the pastor is just some menial slave to the whims of the congregation. Treating the pastor like a doormat, like some ecclesiastical step stool. Not worthy of respect, not worthy of support, no authority, no say whatsoever. He's just the guy that fills 45 minutes of our time each week. 
There are churches that truly do not want a faithful pastor because a faithful pastor would put an end to their rebellion against God's design of the church. By elevating the pastor above his biblical characterization and exalting him to a place that God never intended him to be, that is the second way in which you can misunderstand and mistreat your pastor. So the first is to disregard the pastor, put him below his God-given role, but the second is to elevate him to a place God never meant for him to be. Lifting up pastors and preachers as sources of pride and contention. Thinking that you are better than other Christians because you have so-and-so as your pastor or because you listen to so-and-so's preaching. Attaching yourself to one pastor over another as, to, as a way to prove that you are more spiritual. If you're doing that, you don't understand why God gave pastors. And this is the way that Corinth was misunderstanding the pastoral office. They were not doing the first thing. They were doing the second thing. They were elevating preachers to a place God never placed them. And here in chapter 3, in the first four verses, Paul confronted their spiritual immaturity head on. And now he will begin to address the practical ways in which that immaturity manifested itself in the church. And as Paul corrects the abuse of spiritual leaders, there are several things that we must remember. Number one, for a church to have strong, bold, solid spiritual leaders, it is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is a good thing for there to be gifted men in the church that take the lead. And secondly, we must also remember that Paul makes some very sharp assertions in this text because of the nature of the problem. He will overstate some things. And if we don't know the context of 1 Corinthians, if we don't know the context of chapter 3, we might assume that Paul is saying something that he's really not saying. Okay, We'll see that as we, as we read on. Paul is not devaluing the role or the office of pastor. Had the Corinthians disregarded and rebelled against spiritual leadership, Paul would be speaking in the other direction to lift pastors up. But since the nature of their problem is a misguided exaltation of pastors, Paul must speak so as to bring them back down to their biblical perspective. Paul must go kind of out of his way, so to speak, to humiliate the pride of the Corinthians. And that's what we're going to see in this text. I've broken it down very simply, uh, very easy to follow outline. The first thing I want you to see, beginning with verse 5, is Paul's instruction. The instruction. Verse 5, he begins with this. He says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? Paul begins with a very familiar tactic of his, which is that of asking rhetorical questions. Paul does that. Have you picked up on that as we've been studying 1 Corinthians? And when Paul gets to asking rhetorical questions, you know somebody's in trouble. Obviously, they knew who these men were. Do you see the, the rebuke in that? These men were idols around which the church paraded their factions and cliques. Paul and Apollos were the big dogs in Corinth. They were the celebrities in Corinth. 
Hear the tone of Paul's voice when he's asking these questions. Who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos? Based on what he's already taught in verses 1-4. through four. He, he's, he's being very derogatory, very sharp, very rebuking, very confrontational. Th- these questions, it would be like asking someone who is big-headed, who do you think you are? That's what Paul is doing. Who do you think I am? <laughs> we ask this when someone is behaving arrogantly, right? When someone is, is self-centered. And that's what Paul is doing. He says, who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos? And then, you know you're really in trouble, but not only does he ask the rhetorical questions, but he answers them. He says, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believe. Ministers. I I want us to buckle down on this word minister. They're not celebrities. They're not status symbols. They're not party leaders. They're not even really trendsetters or idols. They're simply ministers. Now this this word minister, I, I, I think it's an interesting word because it's one of those words that we get a lot of other words from. One of the words that we get from minister is the word administer. Administer. So a minister is literally one who dispenses or applies something to those he ministers to. A minister is one who gives. What does a minister administer? Well, nothing that comes from within himself. If he was ministering something that came from within himself, he might be actually worthy of some of this praise, some of this lifting up. But a true minister, a gospel minister, a God-called minister, a Christian minister, does not administer something from within himself, but he administers in his ministry (laughs) the precious things of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is simply the applicator. A faithful minister is like the moon. What does the moon do? All it does is reflect the light from the sun. A minister does not point people to any light or virtue within himself. But he's constantly directing the hearts, the minds, the attentions, the desires, the emotions, the thoughts, the love, and the worship of others away from himself and to the Lord Jesus Christ. A minister is a servant who serves by ministering. That, that, that's a concept that we need to understand. Is a pastor a servant? Yes, he's, he's a servant. How does he serve? By pastoring. God places such an importance on the role of a minister that Jesus used this term of himself. I want you to turn, hold your place in 1 Corinthians, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Turn to Mark chapter 10. And I want you to look at verse 45. This is Jesus speaking about himself. 
about his purpose on earth. He says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to minister. So Jesus says, I am a minister. I came to minister. And what does his ministry entail? And to give his life a ransom for for, for many. Jesus Christ is the greatest minister that has ever lived. He ministered by giving himself as he applied the grace of his life and the benefits of his death to hell-deserving sinners. And those are the same people that we're to apply his life and his death unto. Now, we cannot internally apply his life and his death. Only the Spirit can do that. But we can apply it to their ears. See what I'm saying? We can't administer the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit to cause that gospel to take effect. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. When we understand the nature of a minister, when we see how prestigious this office is, while at the same time realizing that the minister is not the one to be gloried in and praised. Charles Hodge, commentator, rightly said this, quote, The people, speaking of the church, therefore, are bound to regard the ministry as a divine institution and to value its services. See, Paul is not devaluing the ministry. He he is saying that a, a gospel minister carries the same office that Jesus used of himself. But, Hodge continues, preachers are not to be regarded as party leaders or as lords over God's heritage. All adoration, all reverence, all devotion, all allegiance, all affection, and all worship is to be given to God alone. Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Ministers. And then he goes on and he says this, By whom ye believe. By whom. It's such an important phrase. By whom. Notice it does not say because of whom. There's a big difference in saying that, well, I believe because of Paul. No. God alone is the sole cause of your faith in Christ. You did not believe because of anything except for God's goodness. Yet at the same time, God administers His goodness by means. I'm going to talk to you about what we would call in theology God's means of grace. It's a, it's a theological concept. I think it's a biblical concept. Yes, God is the sole cause of your salvation. He's the sole cause of your sanctification. He's the sole cause of every blessing that comes into your life. Yet God has been pleased to give His grace through means, through regular means. God uses means. Ministers are the instruments 
through which God is often pleased to dispense His grace. There are several regular means of grace. If you read a systematic theology book, you will run across this term, means of grace. Ministers are one of those means. Preaching is one of those means. Prayer is one of those means. Bible reading is one of those means. Singing is one of those means. Church is one of those means of grace. Regular means of grace. And and what we find here is the, the means of preaching. The means of a minister. And this phrase, by whom he believed, it distinguishes the means of grace from the grace itself. Because the grace is in the belief. That's where the grace is. But how did they come to believe? Through hearing the gospel from the minister. That's how we need to understand means of grace. How do you receive grace through the means? Through belief, through faith. Do you realize that if you have an unfaithful heart, if you do not truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will get no benefit from reading the Word. But if you have faith, and you read the Word, you receive God's grace through that means. Do you realize you you, you receive no grace through baptism if you're an unbeliever? Faith is the first gift that God gives to His people. Faith is the, the arms and the hands that God gives us so that we can grasp the rest of the grace that He gives us. And, and so if you're baptized and you're unbelieving, that, that baptism is, is not a blessing to you. It's actually a curse to you. But if you have faith, that baptism is a means of God's grace to you. Hearing the gospel preached. If you are an unbeliever and you hear the gospel preached and you do not have faith and you reject it, you have increased your damnation. But if you believe and you hear the gospel preached, you receive God's grace. Because God is pleased to use means in the administration of His grace. Now, at the same time, we must understand that God is not bound to use means, and there are those who are converted in very unusual ways. Because God is the sovereign Savior of men. Now, it is impossible to be converted with no knowledge whatsoever of the gospel. No, one must know the gospel in order to believe upon it. But there are those, for instance, who have never stepped foot in a gospel-preaching church. There are those who have never held a Bible. There are those who have never heard a sermon that God, in some unusual way, is able to save. But it's like anything else. The exception proves the rule. There is a reason why most conversions have happened under sound biblical preaching in a sound biblical church throughout church history. The Bible attests to that. Church history attests to that. God is the sovereign Savior of men. He says who He wants, when He wants, how He wants, but yet at the same time, He's often pleased to use a regular or a normative pattern in the salvation of His people. Chiefly, the chief means in which God uses is the preaching of the Word. So ministers who are the instruments in this means of preaching the Word, they are insignificant when compared to God, when compared to His work, 
but they are essential to the divine scheme. So what we do is we thank ministers. We appreciate faithful biblical preachers, but we glory in God alone. Amen. That's what Paul is laying out here. And, and that's why we need to be careful with this, because if we didn't understand the context, we would read something like this, who then is Paul, who is Apollos, and we might just assume that he's clearly saying there that they're just nobodies, they're nothing, they're garbage, they're rubbish, they're insignificant, they're meaningless, they're worthless. That's not what he's saying. But what he's also not saying is that they're everything. They're the reason we're here. No, God is the reason. Then he says, even as the Lord gave to every man. Now, in the context, this every man is, is referring to ministers. It's referring to the gifts that God gives to ministers. By the way, let me say this as an aside, and we will get to the sections in 1 Corinthians that deal with spiritual gifts. Every believer has spiritual gifts. Every believer. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. They're not all the same gifts, but every believer has them. There, there are gifts that ministers have. And one of the ways to discern your calling in life is to understand what gifts God has given you. And we'll get to that when we get to the section in 1 Corinthians. But there are gifts that God gives to ministers. And the reason why Paul is saying this, even as the Lord gave to every man, is he's saying that it, it wasn't just me and Apollos that have these gifts. It is every minister that has these gifts. It is every preacher that has these gifts. And while you will naturally have your favorites... You're naturally going to have some preachers that you like more than others. You like listening to them more than others. You must remember that there are also other preachers and other pastors who God is using to bless other people in other places. And when you run across someone who perhaps you're, you're all sitting there and you're all thinking of that guy that you like to listen to. I know you are. And perhaps you run across somebody and you're talking about your favorite preacher and you're saying, yeah, he uploaded a new sermon the other day on YouTube and I listened, oh, wasn't it a blessing? And they say, yeah, that's all right. Don't cast that guy into hell because God uses different ministers, different instruments on different people. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with having these favorites. When does it become wrong to have favorites? comes wrong to have favorites when we allow those favorites to divide us from other brothers and sisters who have different favorites. Because all ministers are simply instruments in the hands of God. And whereas God may have used one instrument on me, perhaps he used another on you, but guess what? God is accomplishing the same purpose with all of us. That's the instruction that Paul gives in this text. I want you to see now the illustration. The illustration, beginning at verse 6. Paul will now use an allegory to illustrate the principle that he has just taught. And by the way, let me say this. You can learn a lot about preaching from simply just reading and studying the structure of Paul's letters. Paul was a master preacher. A good sermon begins with a, an engaging and insightful introduction and then it launches into didactic teaching. What do we mean didactic teaching? We mean uh, explicit directives. Here's the lesson. And then a good lesson is always backed up 
with a nifty illustration. And so that's what Paul is doing in this text. And we can learn so much about how to put together sermons and devotions just from reading and studying the structure of Paul's letters. His letters are structured like a fine sermon. So verse 6, he gives us this illustration. He says this, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now this is an agriculture analogy, farming analogy, in which Paul likens the gospel ministry to working a field, to working a farm, to farming. And he says this, I have planted, Paul planted. What does this symbolize? Well, Paul was the first one who was used of God to go to Corinth and preach the gospel. Paul went to Corinth, this Greek city, steeped in Greek philosophy, no believers, no light, darkness, wickedness, and Paul began to preach the gospel for the very first time to those people. He was sowing the seed. He planted the seed in Corinth. And it was under Paul's ministry that the church was established. It was under Paul's ministry that the first converts came to faith in Jesus Christ, and Paul was the first pastor of the Corinthian church. For many of the Corinthians, even reading this letter, they would understand exactly what Paul was saying when he says, for I have planted. Because for many of them, for many of them, Paul was the first man that ever preached the gospel in their hearing. The first person that ever preaches the gospel to you will always hold a very special place in your heart. You will always remember the first time you heard the true biblical gospel. You'll always remember the first time you sat under biblical preaching. It it will be a life-changing experience. And then he says this, I have planted Apollos watered. Now, who is Apollos? Well, we don't have time to jump into a character study of Apollos. But Apollos was a younger man who was a contemporary preacher with Paul. Their ministries overlapped one another. And Apollos came after Paul, and he was the second pastor of the Corinthian church. So just as after the farmer plants the seed, the water boy comes by and waters the seed that was just planted, so too Apollos comes after the ministry of Paul, and he waters, he nurtures the seed that Paul planted. He built upon the foundation that Paul laid, and he continued the work that was begun in Corinth. Now, I have no desire or plans or intentions of leaving Christ's fellowship, but as the Lord gives us other gifted men, as the Lord raises up other elders in this assembly, It will be right for us to say that perhaps I planted and these others have watered. You understand? That's the analogy. One is not better than the other. We're going to see that as well in this text. So we see that this this is the identity of the Corinthian church. This is what happened historically in Corinth. In God's economy of grace, different men are used to do different things. Say that again. Different men are used to do different things. Some men are planters. Some men are waterers. Some men are planters at one time and waterers at another time. Because God uses all sorts of special gifts, skills, personalities, and experiences to accomplish His gracious purpose. 
There are things that you will learn from other men that you will never learn from other men. There are things that uh, certain men will impact you with in ways that other men don't. As you grow in, in the faith and as you're studying the Word of God, uh, certain doctrines, certain truths, you will begin to associate certain truths with certain men. Why is that? Because there are certain truths that you learn from certain men. When you think of Baptistic principles, you might think of a particular man that you knew who was gifted and skilled in that area and taught you those things. When you think of prayer, you might think of another man who was gifted and skilled and taught you in those things. You will begin to associate different areas of the Christian life and doctrine and practice with different men who impacted you in those ways. This is true of me. This is true of all Christians, really. But we must understand that what is God doing? God wants us to be well-rounded. God wants us to be perfect, right? Isn't that what he said in the previous section when he talked about spiritual maturity? He talked about being perfect in Jesus Christ, and that simply just means to come to a state of completeness. You don't want to be somebody that is known for always being on some hobby horse. You want to be a well-rounded Christian. And in order to become a well-rounded Christian, you're going to need to learn from a variety of men and women. I say men because the immediate context is going to be, or the immediate context in this passage is ministers, pastors. It's, it's men and women. It's, it's all Christians that are going to teach us different things. That's, that's God's economy of grace. That's how God is pleased to work amongst his people. And that is a beautiful thing. I, I believe this. I believe that every believer in this room can learn something from every believer in this room. So, is the pulpit the chief place of preaching and teaching? Absolutely. Is your pastor, perhaps your chief instructor in an earthly domain? Yes. But does that mean that that is the only place from which you can learn, from which you can grow, from which you can receive spiritual nourishment? Absolutely not. If, if this pulpit is the only place from which you are receiving the word of God, you are malnourished. Uh, Paul, all throughout this epistle, he's trying to obliterate this, this jealousy and this pride amongst ministers uh, and amongst those who want the corner market on the minds and the development of God's people. And there are pastors out there, shame on them, who try to discourage their congregation from listening to anyone else or to going anywhere else. I, I want you to go other places. I want you to hear other preachers. Now, don't, don't do it when we're meeting. <laughs> but I, I want you to be exposed to different men. I want you to listen to men who believe differently than we do. I'm not talking about cults. I'm not talking about heretics. But I want you to get different perspectives. Because you can learn from those men. And we need to be humble enough to admit that. So, we have the Pauls that plant. We have the Apollos that water. But notice this. But God gave the increase. Though there are a variety of men laboring in the ministry, all of their work is subordinate to the work of God. God alone is the Lord of the harvest. 
God alone has the power to cause the seed of the gospel to grow in the hearts of men. God is the master farmer in the field of souls. Just like a farmer uses many tools. A farmer has a hoe, has a shovel, has a plow. God has many tools. He may use a Paul. He may use an Apollos. But they are just tools. And just like a plow could not till a field unless the farmer propels it along, Paul, Apollos, and every other preacher is unable to preach faith into the hearts of men unless that preaching is accompanied by the creative power of God. A preacher without the power of God is like a plow without a farmer. All it can do is sit in the field and accomplish nothing. We must understand that. As we knock doors, as we preach in the community, as we share Jesus Christ with others in our day-to-day life, we must remember that we are but tools. And that we can accomplish nothing unless God uses us. as we strive to do great things for the glory of God, as we seek to be workers in God's kingdom, we must never forget that it is always God that gives the increase. See, the Corinthians were foolishly attaching themselves to the external instruments of grace instead of attaching themselves to the God of grace. We live in West Tennessee. There's tons of farmland around here, tons of big farms, Imagine going to a big farm, a big prosperous farm, and the farmer is giving you a a tour of the farm. And he's showing you all of his crop. He's showing you all of his livestock. And you walk up to a, a dirty old shovel, and you pick up and you say, Whoa, look at this great, amazing shovel. This must be why you have such a great farm. That farmer would probably say, how disrespectful, get off, my, get off my farm. Why? Because it wasn't the shovel that did all that, it was the farmer that was using the shovel. <laughs> well, so too is it with God. When we say things like, I'm a Christian because of this man. I believe what I believe because of this man. And Again, we have to be careful because there is a sense in which you will learn things through men that taught you those things, but if it's true biblical doctrine, you didn't learn them from that man. You learned them from God. He just used that man to teach it to you. Paul had to remind them that spiritual leaders, the ones that they lauded and praised, were entirely incapable of doing anything apart from the power and might of God. Why is it that two men can hear the same sermon, can read the same Bible, and yet one of them is saved and the other is lost? Why is that? Because salvation is not in the externals. We can preach till our lungs collapse. But if God does not empower that preaching, it will never amount to anything.
Therefore, it is incumbent on us to be faithful, to obey God, to labor, but to trust God for the results. This is the responsibility of the farmer. The farmer tills the ground. He plants the crop. He waters the field, but he is not responsible for producing the crop. Why? Because he does not possess the ability. Now, if he doesn't do the work, if he lets the ground overgrow with thorns and thistles and weeds and bramble, then we could say, you didn't produce any crop because you were a bad farmer. But when the farmer is faithful, when the farmer does all that he is supposed to do, there are still things that could prevent that crop from producing. A frost might come that kills the crop. A storm might come that kills the crop. Animals, insects might come and ruin the harvest. And that's to no fault of the farmer. This is a tremendous analogy that Paul is using here, isn't it? We need to learn to appreciate the sovereignty of God like a farmer does. I've met some, some of the most godly, mature, wise Christians who were farmers. And I think it's because what they do day in and day out is so akin to what God does in the souls of men. Uh, the farmer has to work the ground, he has to prepare, he has to plant, then he has to pray. Pray and hope that some crops will grow. We need to grasp this truth. What a humbling truth it is. On the one hand, we are humbled because we see the futility of our own labors in and of themselves. We realize that our preaching, our ministering, everything that we have can do nothing. But on the other hand, what a privilege to think that though God does not need us, He is pleased to use us to accomplish His purpose for His glory. Consider that. Does God need you to save His people? Would there be one less person saved on the final day if you never shared the gospel with anyone? My answer to that is no. Though God does not need you, He is pleased to use you. And He is beckoning you to enter in. Enter in to what He is doing in the world. Our Lord had one prayer request throughout His entire ministry. Do you know what it was? He said, the harvest is ready for the picking. The problem is not that there's not enough lost sinners out there. (laughs) That's not the problem. He said, the harvest is ready. He says, pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers forth to gather. 
problem is not that there's not enough people out there that need the gospel. We could walk out of church tonight and we could literally walk a hundred feet and find someone that needs the gospel. The problem is that there's not enough farmers. There's not enough laborers. This extends beyond the pulpit. This extends beyond the pastorate. This is every one of us that are called of God to be workers in the field. Does God need the farmer? No. Does God use the farmer? Yes. Again, back to this agriculture analogy. Do you realize that there's going to be vegetation growing whether someone farms the ground or not? But what produces the most usable crop? When we just naturally let the ground produce what it produces? Or when we work the ground and till the ground and cultivate the ground? That's God's regular means of grace. That he is beckoning us to be a part of. Well, I still have half of my notes that I haven't even got through. So we'll make this a part two. We'll make this a part one, and we'll make next Sunday a part two. But in these verses, Paul is putting preachers into perspective. That is what he's doing. He is, he is cutting them down to size. He is bringing them down. And he's doing this not so much for the benefit of the preachers, but for the benefit of the congregation. Preachers don't get big-headed on their own. Preachers don't get exalted on their own. I heard one man say, and I, I pray that someday I will be able to say this with the sincerity that that man said it. He said, I am far more worried. I am far more fearful of prosperity than I am of failure. Because what happens when a church begins to grow? What happens when that pastor hears, oh, good sermon, brother, one too many times? What happens? If the Spirit of God does not humble him, he begins to think, well, maybe this crop really is my doing. Maybe I really am the reason for what has been produced. We need to put preachers into perspective. You need to have the right perspective on preachers. The Corinthians needed this then. We need it now. We need it now in our, our age of celebrity pastors and mega church preachers. We need this. We must remember that a minister is a sinner saved by grace. He needs the same grace of God that you need. And apart from that grace, he's no better than you or anyone. May we strive to labor as God has designed and God has directed. Now, the rest of this text, verses 7 through 9, have some implications. We have the instruction, we have the illustration, we have the implications. We're not going to get to the implications tonight, but we will get to them. I'm thankful for what the Lord is doing in this series in 1 Corinthians. I'm thankful for, for how this is helping me in my own personal life. I don't think anyone understands except for God himself. What a blessing 
the word is to me as I'm studying this, and I trust that it is a blessing to you as well. Amen. And I would be amiss if I did not say to you that you need the seed that is planted. You need the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need the message of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, sent to earth from the Father, lived a perfect life, died a sinless death, in the stead of sinners just like you. You need that. You need to believe that. You need to receive that for yourself. You need to be saved from your sin. And if you're out there and your spiritual field has been overgrown by thorns and bramble and weeds, you need to till up the ground of your heart so that the seed of the gospel can be planted within you. And then you need to water that seed. You need to follow the Lord Jesus. You need to serve the Lord Jesus. You need to glorify the Lord Jesus. That and nothing less is what it means to be a Christian. We thank God for His Word. And I urge you to come to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe upon the sinless Son of God. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us as a people. Father, we thank you for your grace to us as a congregation. We thank you for the Word of God, all that it entails, all that it teaches us, all the instruction that we receive from it. Father, we're so thankful for the God that we serve the Bible that we preach, the word that we receive. Grow us, strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.